Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit us online at redemption.ca. Uh, none of us actually are that good at making new habits. It's so much easier just to revert back to our old ways. It can be a challenge to believe that it's really worth it because we're used to the way we've always done it. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't make goals or create plans to change, but it does mean that personal effort and self-help books are unable to change you in the most important ways. The right people with you And a well-defined process and a concrete purpose can, however, be all very helpful. I mean, if you just if you think about it for a moment, we we understand that some of these things, the right people, the right process, and a, a real purpose can be helpful. When you think about it this way, we've all felt alone or forgotten or scared. And in those times, who you are with really makes all the difference. It's pretty easy to illustrate. Um, if there's a child, this happened to me when I was a child, you get lost in the grocery store. And all of a sudden, the grocery store is bigger than it's ever been. You don't know where you are. You're looking frantically up the aisles. Where's mom and dad? Maybe panic begins to set in a little bit until perhaps the manager of the store seeks to help, which is a little reassuring. But when mom or dad, when you look down the right aisle, or dad puts his hand on your shoulder, There's a sense of relief. All is well. Who you are with makes the difference. Uh, Most of us can relate to feeling overwhelmed or or stressed or anxious. And, And during those times, we can get a sense of reassurance if we know how everything will work out. Maybe you make a schedule, you create a to-do list, you delegate some tasks, you begin to get organized, or you, you just see how this process is going to work itself out, and there's a bit of relief there. All right, I can see now this is going to work together for the way it needs to. We, we can gain some perspective and understand that everything will, in fact, get done, so there's some sense of release. We're not, relief. We're not so paralyzed by anxiety. Or you've probably also experienced moments of purposelessness, when you don't seem to know why you're doing what you're doing or where it's going. Uh, When that happens, then kind of revitalized convictions or a well-defined purpose can be helpful. If you were assured that no matter what you do, you will not, in fact, you cannot fail, then you'd be encouraged to press on and persevere. The point is that the right people, a well-defined process, and a concrete purpose can all be very helpful, Uh, but those will only ultimately be helpful if and when they are tied to your dependence on Christ. Apart from an act of dependence on Him, you can really do nothing of spiritual value. Without the Spirit applying gospel-rich promises, we are stuck. Uh, we're, We're slaves to our sin. We need supernatural grace and resurrection power operating in our life, and we access that grace and power through faith. Much of the Christian life is about fortifying your faith and replacing unbelief with biblical promises. In the text for today, 
was designed to reinforce your confidence in God's character, particularly in the areas of his presence, his process, and his purpose. This morning, we're going to see three truths about God that will strengthen your resolve. Uh, For Joseph, these truths encourage him to trust God's sovereign plan through various trials and remain faithful until the fulfillment of his dream vision. For Israel, who would have been reading this book, they were strengthened their resolve to enter the promised land with confidence and, and with godly convictions. For you and me, these truths promote stronger faith to live as ambassadors for Christ. Now, really, the big idea of our passage this morning is that when your faith is tested through trials, he is working all things together for your good and his redemptive purposes. I trust we'll get a glimpse in this as we open up again to the book of Genesis. But let me pray again for us and we'll get to it. Father, we, we come, even as we've just said, independence upon you. Lord, I put no confidence in my own abilities or in my preparation. You must come and move among us. Would you use your word and minister it to our hearts? Would you give us eyes to see our Savior Christ and new glimpses of glory that we might be transformed more into his image? Would you use your powerful living word in our lives this morning? Bring conviction where it's needed. Bring encouragement where it's needed. Help us understand who you are and how you're working in our lives, even this very day. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're not already there, you can turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and the ushers will happily supply you with a copy to use or to keep. We will be in Genesis chapter 39. Before we get there, the last Sunday, Pastor Trevor gave a very helpful explanation of what happened with Judah and Tamar. We, we saw that the rebellion, the deception, the fornication, the hypocrisy, all worked together towards Judah's conversion, towards the birth of Perez, uh, which is the line of David and the Messiah, and it worked towards reiterating that God's redemptive plans operate on grace, not works. The story of Judah and Tamar also set up a kind of a contrast, a stark contrast with our passage for today. It provides this contrast so that the reader understands that God is over all, the good and the ugly. He has at work in the mess and the success as he uses human faithfulness and failures to carry out his will, whether that's the Judah and Tamar story or the Joseph story. So follow along as I read in Genesis 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all the land, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. 
And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way that your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. From this passage, as I've said, we will see three truths about God that will strengthen your resolve. But before we unpack the significance of this chapter, a few simple observations will help us understand the author's meaning. In other words, we want to allow the passage itself to unveil God's emphasis, why he emphasizes it, and then we can see how this relates to you and me. Remember, when you read biblical narrative like this text, the goal is not merely to kind of insert yourself into the passage and find some kind of shared experience. God never changes, but the way he interacts with his people does. And God does not... um, always work with us in exactly the same way. For example, God has not spoken to you in a dream in the same way he did to Joseph. And God is likely not preparing you to save most of the known world from a famine. We also have to guard against making people the heroes of the story. Joseph was indeed a godly man. In fact, he foreshadowed the Messiah, but his good qualities point to the ultimate source of power and grace. Uh, Joseph is a good example, but he leads us to the one that is greater than him. 
As we read about Joseph and Potiphar's house, we need to identify the timeless truths that transcend his circumstances. Uh, we need to see how God is at work and, and then connect that to the gospel so that we can understand both the significance then and now. We can all relate to fleeing from temptation, and, and Joseph's re- response was honorable and full of integrity, but is that the main point of the passage? Now, we see that God prospered Joseph, but does that mean that God will prosper and give us favor in the same way that he did Joseph? Look again at the chapter. If you're in small group, you may have observed how the passage is bracketed. Now, there, there are bookends that frame the chapter. At the beginning and the end of the passage, we read that the Lord was with Joseph. Verses 2, 3, 21, and 23. Now, compare that with the repeated phrase in the middle of the passage. Three times, Potiphar's wife wants to be with Joseph. Uh, with these observations, I think we conclude that kind of the, the main point of the passage is that the Lord is with Joseph even when his faith is tested through trials and temptations. It, it add to that the, the kind of the greater context of Joseph's life before and after Potiphar's house, and you see that not only is the Lord with Joseph, he was also accomplishing his sovereign and redemptive purposes through Joseph. Now, based on these kind of observations and some other textual clues that we'll talk about here, there are at least three timeless truths about God that will strengthen your resolve. Now, the first is this. God's, God's presence produces fruit. God's presence produces fruit. Before arriving in Egypt, Joseph was favored by his father but despised by his brothers. He had a dream that his entire family would bow down to him. This outraged the already jealous brothers, so they nearly killed him, but settled on selling Joseph into slavery. Uh, Genesis 39 verse 1 picks up where 37 verse 26 left off. And what we read is that Joseph went from rags to riches, from slavery to success. Notice the progression in the opening verses. The Lord was with Joseph, and as a result... Joseph became a successful man. The Lord caused all that he had to succeed. This led to great favor with Potiphar so that Joseph was in charge of everything. And the Lord blessed Potiphar's house for Joseph's sake. And there's a similar progression at the end of the chapter when Joseph is in prison. Uh, this, This emphasis that we see here that God was with Joseph and that he prospered Joseph is clearly intentional and central to the passage. So we have to ask, what's going on? Why was God with Joseph? And why was he causing such success? Well, God was with Joseph to ensure his sovereign plan was perfectly executed. His presence reassured Joseph during trials and triumphs on the way to fulfilling Joseph's dream. God was in control. Uh, The lavish blessings gave Joseph courage to resist temptations as well as the confirmation that God was indeed with him. You see, God was caring for Joseph, knowing that his presence was his greatest gift while God was also accomplishing his plan. At, At the end of the chapter, 
The success and favor Joseph experienced was again because the Lord was with him. And then it adds this phrase, the Lord showed him steadfast love. In other words, God's covenant loyalty and affection was upon Joseph. The word for steadfast love is chesed. And it's an Old Testament expression of gospel grace. God's undeserved kindness and favor was upon his servant. And he's working out his covenant promises through Joseph in a way that demonstrated his fatherly love and care. If we broaden our scope a little bit, we see that God is with his people all throughout the Bible. And his presence produces fruit and blessings. God was with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they all prospered. God was with Moses, and he gave him power to perform miracles and success against the Egyptians. God was with Israel as a cloud by day and fire by night, and he led them, protected them, provided for them, and fulfilled covenant promises. God was with Joshua so that Israel drove out the Canaanites and possessed the land. God was with David so that he was a man after God's own heart and his kingdom flourished. God was with the disciples so they performed miracles, preached powerful sermons, and established the church. God has always been with his people, and his presence produces his blessings, all for their good and his glorious purposes. Throughout Scripture, there are countless and very precious promises that God is with his people For example, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring. And to Jacob, he said, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And to Israel, he said, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Fear not. For I am with you. To Joshua, he said, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of the Canaanites, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave or forsake you. And to the disciples, when they were afraid at the sea, he said, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. So here's a timeless truth illustrated in Joseph's life God's presence produces fruit. God's presence prospers. God's presence comforts and reassures. It strengthens and sustains. It's life-giving and hope-producing. But how does God's presence prosper? Or how does God's presence produce fruit in new covenant believers like you and me? Prosperity for you and me doesn't mean climbing the corporate ladder or of earthly success. It doesn't mean favor with the jailer when you land in prison. It means the spiritually rich life of joy and contentment in Christ. It, it means renouncing ungodliness and worldly passion to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This side of the cross, we understand that God came to be with us when he sent Jesus to be like us, and then he sent his spirit to dwell in us. The Father sent another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. And Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And listen, my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The triune God says, we will be with you. We will dwell in you. 
As a result, when you abide in Christ and when we walk in the Spirit, we experience the fullness of his joy, the peace that transcends understanding, hope that abounds, and the spiritually fruitful life. God is always with you, even to the end of the age, because you are united to Christ. You have every spiritual blessing, and you can produce the fruit of the Spirit. The takeaway here for for us is simply this. Abide in Christ and walk in the Spirit so that you enjoy God's blessings. God's greatest gift to you is himself. But you have to cultivate that relationship with him. Cherish time spent with him in his word and prayer. Prioritize communion with him by putting away sin and pursuing holiness. God's presence and his blessings in your life are hindered. They're hindered when you neglect communion with him and when you reject him through disobedience. When you focus on abiding in Christ and walking in the Spirit, you will experience the rich blessings of fellowship with the triune God and a spiritually fruitful life. Asaph understood this. In Psalm 73, when he witnessed the prosperity of the wicked, he became jealous But then he came to a census, and he wrote at the end of Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. God's presence makes all the difference. Well, there's a second truth about God that will strengthen your resolve. Secondly, God's process purifies faith. God's process purifies faith. As we said, another key observation to understanding this chapter is found in the middle of the passage. Potiphar's wife repeatedly tempted Joseph to be with her. So, we've already seen, bookended on the passage, the Lord was with Joseph, but sin was calling for Joseph to forsake the Lord and be with the forbidden woman. In verses 6 and 7, we read that Joseph was a handsome in form and appearance, and Potiphar's wife couldn't resist. She insisted Joseph lie with her, but he refused. Notice, notice just some things about how temptation works, how it operates in Joseph's life and circumstances here. Now, God was with Joseph, so he experienced blessings and success. There was, however, one prohibition, which in this case was the source of temptation. The wife was off limits. Sound familiar? I mean, think about it. God walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and gave them one rule. Do not eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, Eve was tempted to disobey this one rule and sinned against God. What we learn from this, and, and this kind of the way that sin works here and there, is that sin is opportunistic. It strikes where we're vulnerable. Uh, temptation, by definition, is desirable. If you don't want what sin offers, then it's not really a temptation. Our deceitful desires and our deceitful hearts want what we can't have. Now, this is quite easy to illustrate if you have children. I mean, 
mention something that they can't have and instantly they want it, even if they don't even know what it is or what it means or what it does. Can I have it? I want it. Children are, it's just so, I can't have it, so I must want it. I must need it if I can't have it. This is how sin operates in our heart. It's opportunistic. And Paul wrote in Romans 8, 7, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Once you can't have the wife, the wife becomes desirable. This is what Joseph was up against. In addition, the temptation is often relentless, Uh, Verse 10 says, this went on day after day. You can't insulate yourself from temptation. It's a daily part of life. Very often, we have to resist temptation over and over again. A slow drip of subtle temptations can wear you down. If persistent prodding doesn't work, then sin may tempt you with an ambush. Verse 11, that phrase, one day, It is a way of saying one particularly noteworthy day. In other words, the wife had a premeditated plan of attack. She was ready to pounce on Joseph, and he had to choose between sinning against God or offending his master's wife. To refuse Potiphar's wife would risk losing his status in the home and could lead to his demise. And to receive Potiphar's wife, however, would definitely mean losing his status in the home and lead to his demise. Because you see, it was God who had caused the success. So to sin against God would be to sin against the one who was in fact producing the blessing. God was, at, God was working out his plan to prepare Joseph for a greater responsibility. Disobeying God would mean disregarding his sovereign grace and forfeiting his favor. Well, as you know, Joseph did resist the temptation, and what we learn through his triumph is a few things. Uh, Notice that Joseph immediately and continually refused. Uh, He didn't think about the offer or dwell on the possibility. He would not listen to her, said in verse 10. If you want to sin, it's easy to justify it. It's easy to rationalize it in your mind. For Joseph, it could have been, well, you know, Potiphar has prospered because of me. Everything I touch brings favor upon Potiphar's home. I think I deserve a little sugar. Or, you know, this wasn't my idea. I'll I'll lie with her once so she stops asking. But Joseph refused immediately and continually. He doesn't dwell on it or consider the possibilities And notice also, and I think this is very important, he vocalized his convictions. Temptation grows stronger and sin increases in the dark. It can be helpful to reject sin out loud or to tell someone about the temptation. Here Joseph gave the wife an explanation for his refusal so that his intentions were clear, his convictions are plain. He told her that her idea would abuse Potiphar's trust, violate his master's wife, and is a sin against God. In in doing so, Joseph called sin, sin. And he acknowledged its wickedness and its ultimately how it offends his, his master. And finally, when the ambush when the ambush came, Joseph fled. 
You didn't try to talk her out of it because you don't reason with sin, you run. He didn't try to resist her advances because you don't negotiate with sin, you flee. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says succinctly, flee from sexual immorality. And Proverbs chapters 5, 6, and 7 give warnings and strategies that we should all take to heart. Joseph refused Potiphar's wife because he had godly wisdom and convictions. He was convinced God had a specific plan for his life and he, he was resolved to live on mission. So Joseph resisted the temptation, but the trial was not over. Dejected, outraged, and embarrassed, the wife hatched a second plan. Now that her sinister seduction failed, she had to invent a story in order to salvage her reputation. She used Joseph's garment to lie and accuse him of attempting to rape her. Now, you can, you can imagine the scene here. The, the Egyptian servants would have likely resented having a foreigner placed over them. Uh, so Potiphar's wife tapped into that resentment and gave them the chance to get rid of the Hebrew servant. Uh, once the report reached Potiphar, he was furious. He was forced to act decisively to protect his honor and defend his wife. So he sent Joseph to prison. Interestingly, I mean, just take this for what it's worth, we don't actually know for sure why Potiphar was angry. Was it because the accusation against Joseph? Probably. But could it have been because his wife had forced him into a position to lose his beloved servant? He had to act here, had no other choice. But this servant, Joseph, had brought so much prosperity and favor to his home. Certainly he was upset about the accusation, Probably he was disappointed to lose Joseph. Now we got to ask again, what's going on here? If God is with Joseph, why put him in this situation that will lead to the loss of his status and ultimately some jail time? This was the second time Joseph's clothing was used to bring a false report about him. And in both cases, he was serving faithfully only to end up in bondage. Why not just place Joseph directly into Potiphar's, excuse me, into Pharaoh's house? Skip Potiphar, jail, and the dream interpretations. Why not forgo the trials and the temptations? Well, because God showcases his power, wisdom, and sovereign grace as he works all things together for our good in his glory. And because God, God's process, his process to get us from here to where we need to be to carry out the responsibilities he's given to us, God's process purifies our faith. It prunes us. It prepares us for what he has. We would like to think that God's presence shields us from trials and temptations, but the opposite is true. Faith purifying trials Fatherly discipline and the grace to overcome temptations are evidences of God's love in your life because he's preparing you for something greater. He's preparing you for his service. This is God's process. This is his design to purify, prune, and prepare you for your mission as ambassadors and for your destination as you await home in heaven. God's process is meant to humble you and keep you dependent on him. 
Every person on the planet has a self-serving view of themselves. Every person thinks too highly of themselves. No exceptions. Thus, all people need to be humbled. We need an accurate biblical view of ourselves so that we are completely dependent on God's power and grace. When we recognize our weakness and our inadequacies, we are strengthened with God's sufficient grace. His power is made perfect in our weakness, but you have to know that you're weak. Then in God's timing and according to his purposes, the humble are exalted. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. This is played out dozens of times in Scripture. Abraham was tested with the birth and sacrifice of Isaac. Moses was humbled in Egypt and fled to the countryside before his leadership role. God's people were slaves in Egypt before gaining the promised land. Paul persecuted the church and, was, and viewed himself as the worst of all sinners, even though he was the greatest apostle. Peter denied Christ before preaching at Pentecost. Even Jesus, the perfect Son of God, was tempted in every respect, yet without sin. He learned obedience through his sufferings so that he sympathizes with our weaknesses and is able to help those who are tempted. Jesus was falsely accused, betrayed, and humbled on the cross before he was exalted. But it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross and is now seated at the right hand of God. Joseph was a work in process. He was brought low to prepare him for greater responsibility. You see, those who are called into important service, which is all of us, the important service to serve our king as ambassadors for Christ, we're all trained in the school of affliction. This is my own experience in, in many ways. Right? I think we all could give our kind of examples of the trials God has used to, to purify our faith, to prune us, to prepare us for things coming up ahead. Uh, one very specific example stands out in my mind. Uh, after I graduated from seminary many years ago now, I, I took my first pastoral position in Oregon. And just south of Spiar, south of Portland there, I pastored for four years. And during that time, I, I won't go into the details, but it was horrific. It was, it was very difficult for a variety of reasons, relationships, uh, livelihood. But most significantly was the interactions and the conflicts with the leadership team. It was, it was a hard season. Uh, in the end, I was fired and moved up to Washington where... I had friends and uh, family. Well, I tell that only to say that I am so thankful for those four years in Oregon. I, I have no doubt that God was preparing me for a, a longevity in my calling. I, I, when I arrived in Spokane after that, um, I, I came a little bit discouraged, somewhat dejected, and really was, I had this thought, I'm not sure I will continue in ministry. I'm not sure I will continue uh, that direction. I think maybe God has something else for my life. I arrive in Spokane. Day one, on the ground in Spokane, Pastor Trevor calls. And he says, would you think about coming up to Canada to serve on a pastoral team? I, I kid you not, had it been anyone else, it would have been an easy no. 
I had a prior relationship with Trevor, so we talked it through, did the candidating process, and by God's grace, I came here. Now I've been 11 years. But those four years and other trials were what I needed. The same is true in Pastor Trevor's life. I think I can say quite confidently, and you've seen it as well, you know his story, that Pastor Trevor is the man he is today in part because of the trials God has used in his life. Uh, most notably, as he shared, when uh, his daughter, uh, Hope, received the brain injury uh, almost 12 years ago now, uh, that, that trial has shaped him and continues to impact him and his family. And I think, working alongside of him, that it's, it's one of the reasons that Pastor Trevor is um, God's humble servant. Frankly, uh, Trevor is one of the humblest people I know. And I think that's a testimony to God's trials in his life. Right? You, you don't, you're not born humble. You're the, the, hum, the pride, the self-serving uh, ways, they're shaved off through hardship. The takeaway for you and me are at least three. Three takeaways. One is expose sin and temptations. Confess to one another. Admit your vulnerabilities. Don't allow even the, the we'll say, the simplest or quietest temptations or sins to go unvocalized. You should have somebody in your life that you talk to. Second one is encourage one another daily and carry one another's burdens lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Just, just think, who needs your help? Who has burdens that I can help carry? And also think, whose burdens, who is carrying my burdens? Who is helping me with the load? Who will I know will ask me hard questions? Who do I have in my life that will uh, speak to me and that I can be vulnerable to? A third takeaway, embrace God's process to purify your faith and prepare you for his purposes. Counter all joy when you, when you meet with trials of various kinds because it produces maturity. God tests your faith so that it will result in the praise and glory of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen to James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Every trial really presents, puts a fork in the road for you. That fork in the road usually leaves in one of three directions. Despair, determination, as in self-determination, or dependence. Those are your options. Despair, self-determination, or dependence. Embrace God's process to purify you and depend upon him. Well, finally, there's a third truth about God that will strengthen your resolve. And that's this. God's purpose prevails forever. This final point is actually, really, it's a governing theme of the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph highlights the sovereignty of God. So this is a theme we'll return to over the coming weeks. So I'll, I'll seek to be brief here and just kind of introduce it. We see that God's purpose prevails by looking at the final verses of chapter 39 and considering the greater context as it relates to this passage. Twice now, Joseph has risen to privileged, favored status, and both times the sins of other people 
have led to his downfall, at least circumstantially. At this point, Joseph is in a jail cell wondering what happens next. And by the way, if you're wondering, uh, Joseph's prison stay was not at all inclusive, right? I mean, this is not the weight room and Netflix kind of jail setting. Psalm 105 says, His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. Joseph entered Egypt around 1899 B.C., and he rose to power with Pharaoh around 1886 B.C., so depending on how long he was in Potiphar's house, it could be another decade or so before his dreams are fulfilled, and he's second in command of Pharaoh. In the meantime, Joseph rose to power within the prison system. And this, of course, was not coincidental, and it was not based on his good looks. God's sovereign purposes cannot be thwarted. In fact, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Uh, We will see many evidences of God's sovereignty as we work through the rest of the book of Genesis. But so far, we've seen how God providentially caused Joseph to be the favored son, which spurned his brothers and got him sold into slavery. The Midianites sold Joseph to Potiphar, which landed him in Egypt and marks the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy to Abraham. Back in Genesis 15, 13, it says, Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. God is working out the plan. It's no accident that Potiphar was the captain of the guard, meaning he had jurisdiction over the royal prison, which is the place Joseph needed to end up if he was going to meet the chief cupbearer and chief baker. Also, uh, death was the expected fate for those who attempted rape. So Potiphar's anger makes it surprising that he didn't have Joseph killed, but God was with Joseph. His sovereign grace prevailed and preserved his servant. You see, Potiphar and his wife were freely making decisions according according to their desires, but their choices were made according to God's sovereign plan. The prison guard may have observed that Joseph was worthy of greater responsibility, but really it was the creator of the universe who gave Joseph favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The Lord made Joseph succeed. God was and still does work all things, every detail to accomplish his divine plan. His sovereignty means he has the authority to rule and govern his creation. And his providence means he is continually involved with all of creation to sustain it, cooperate with it to cause a reaction, and direct it to fulfill his purposes. If this sounds all very heavy, listen to this. This, my friends, is very good news. It's good news because God is good and his purposes are good There is no one else you'd rather have run the universe. Listen, he has demonstrated his love in that while we were still sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. He demonstrated his power by resurrecting Christ from the dead and gifting you with that resurrecting power. Ephesians 1.18 and 19. He demonstrated his generosity by sending his spirit to dwell in you. Luke 11.13. 
He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8, 32. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Luke 12, 32. All believers, as believers, God works all things together for our good, namely to our conformity to Christ, which lends itself to our greater joy. Listen, God is sovereign, and he's in control, and he's trustworthy. God is with you, for you, in you, and promises to bring you all the way to glory. All these promises and everything else in Scripture are meaningless unless God is sovereign and able to accomplish his purposes according to his providence. What we see in Joseph's life is that God's purposes prevail regardless of the factors, circumstances, timeline, and unexplained events. Joseph was God's man, and he prepared Joseph for his Egyptian role. God perfectly planned and executed a way to save his people from famine, to relocate them to Egypt, and to set up an an epic illustration of God's power and grace through the Passover, not to mention the greater redemptive storyline of paving the way for the Passover lamb, and the new covenant. The takeaway is quite simple. God's purpose for your life will prevail. There are many promises that can be highlighted. Here's a sample. 2 Peter 1.4 God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God's purpose and plan is for you to embrace his promises and to escape the corruption of this world. Or here's a precious couple of verses in 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Or the last verses of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Listen, I'll say it again. God is good, he is trustworthy, and he is carrying out his purposes in your life. So seek and set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the Father's right hand. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Gaze upon his glory so that you do not become faint-hearted. Renew your mind with gospel promises so that God's purposes are sweet to you. Life is hard. We live in a sin-cursed, flawed world full of brokenness and sorrow. But you could take heart because God's purposes prevail. And his purpose for your life is good and guaranteed. There will be trials and temptations that strengthen your faith. There will be trials and temptations that deepen your dependence. But there is always well-timed grace and ever-present help. There will be times of plenty and times of want. But the shepherd will keep you and carry you through the valleys. Praise the Lord that we can taste and see that he is good. And that taste will soon give way to the feast of never-ending abundance and perfect communion with our Father. Until that day, 
Whatever your circumstances, you can be certain that God's presence produces fruit. You are not alone, and God does provide. God's process purifies faith. Whatever your trial, God is at work for your good. And God's purpose prevails. We have an unwavering hope. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we have taken this time to think about your character and the ways that it interacts with us. And in the end, we, we worship. We bow before you. We recognize that you are the sovereign king and creator of the world. And yet you are also our tender father, our shepherd. You care for the very details of our life. You sympathize with our weaknesses. You are near to us. In fact, you're in us and you're with us. For this, we are humbled. And we pray, Lord, may we remain dependent upon you. We recognize our need to be humbled. And we freely surrender to your good purposes to prepare us for whatever you have, however we can serve you. May it be for your glory, and may it be for our greater joy as we delight in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit us online at redemption.ca.